Well, it's been a little while, um, and uh, but we uh, are not too far from uh, wrapping things up. Basically, we want to look at the Anabaptist movement, uh, some leading Anabaptists. Then we're going to look at uh, one of the key events uh, as to how Anabaptists were viewed by the rest of the church. Um, specifically, we will look at the rebellion at Munster. Uh, which in some ways is an unfair thing to do to Anabaptists as a whole, but we'll we'll talk about all that. And then we finish up with Calvin, and uh, that will be that. I haven't decided uh, what where we're going to go from there yet, but um, um, we'll uh, go back to something in the Bible. Uh, we have been doing the uh, Synoptic Gospels for uh, almost a decade, and... Uh, so we will wrap up the church history. The people are, why don't you go up to the modern period? I've never taught after uh, 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 medieval Reformation uh, church history, and so it would be a whole lot of uh, extra study that I don't have time to do right now. If you want to do, if you want me to do something that I'm actually studying right now, then we'll start into coherence-based genealogical method uh, the week after that, and nobody will be attending uh, in the mornings. <laughs> so uh, that's just sort of how that will uh, that will work. So, um, uh, years ago, uh, when I first started coming here, uh, uh, Brother Ed, who isn't uh, here this morning, uh, directed me to a book or gave me a book uh, by uh, Leonard Verdine, actually two books, uh, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren and Anatomy of a Hybrid. And at the time, Dr. Verdine was still alive. He actually uh, lived out, uh, he lived uh, the end of his years out in Apache Junction, uh, did you ever meet Dr. Verdine? A couple of times he spoke at Foreign Church. Did he? Did some teaching there. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, I only met him um, once. I was uh, probably, it was about 1990-ish. Um, maybe a little after that, maybe 91. I, I forget when it was. Anyway, um, drove out to Apache Junction and... Uh, Spent some time with him. I think he lived to like 105, if I recall correctly. He was uh, he he was uh, very elderly in his upper 90s when I uh, when I met with him at a little mobile home out in Apache Junction. Uh, wasn't uh, wasn't a rich man, and you wonder how someone who certainly wasn't born in the United States. I don't believe. I think he was was he Belgian or something like that. Or I think he was Belgian. Uh, how you end up, how anyone ends up in Apache Junction is actually uh, a, a fairly decent question, I think. Um, but uh, evidently, like the heat, <laughs> you gotta like the heat if you're gonna live in Apache Junction. Well, anyway, but anyway, um, at the time I was teaching church history at Grand Canyon, and uh, so I went out and uh, we spent some time in his home talking about Luther, and and uh, I've told the story before. I, he said he told me something that Luther had said, and I'd never heard anybody. I had not read that and like that. And I said, "Really?" And he said, "I said Luther said that." And this is a man in his upper nineties, and he uh, he says, uh, "Would you like the citation in German, Dutch, or English?" Um, so in his nineties, he could quote Luther by memory in three different languages. Um, 
and after we talked about church history and stuff, we walked around outside his uh, his little place, and he was pointing out all the flowers, and obviously had spent hours uh, minutely examining these flowers and uh, knew all about the different genus and species. The guy was brilliant. He was really, really smart. Uh, still don't understand the Apache Junction part, but really, you know, maybe if you get, maybe by the time you get into your late 90s, you don't really want to be around people anymore, <laughs> which uh, I can understand today. Um, you know, if you spent your life on Twitter and Facebook, yeah, I'd move to Mars, but uh, uh, that wasn't the case back then. We hadn't completely lost our civilization at that point. So anyway, um, uh, the outline that I have uh, intra- in an introductory uh, way to this subject uh, comes from uh, Verdine's book, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, where he spent a lot of time uh, discussing uh, various terms that I've put on the board uh, descriptive of... These were, these were insults uh, that were used against uh, the radicals by both Catholics and Protestants. And he does not limit his discussion to just from Luther forward, but recognizes that there had always been an anti-sacral movement um, that waxed and waned, And one of the biggest problems in dealing with what history has identified as the Anabaptist movement is simply the matter of definition. Um, We live in a day where uh, people make connections based upon some of the flimsiest reasoning and as a result come up with horrific uh, ideas that, uh, that historically are just absolutely laughable. Um, but uh, the, the fact is, that term, Anabaptist, which of course was rejected by the movement itself, they did not believe themselves to be rebaptizing anyone, but it is so massively vague that it encompasses Trinitarians, non-Trinitarians, people that used violence and people that were complete pacifists and, and, and people that had some sort of sacramental theology and people that rejected all sorts of sacramental theology and, and ju- just the, the breadth of belief that ends up underneath that, that name is so broad that it really leaves you going, well, can't we get a little more specific? <laughs> Uh, because um, you, you end up painting with such huge, broad strokes. And of course, much of the history is written by the people who hated these people. Uh, they were a deeply hated people for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they were um, very much opposed to what people thought was, was good societal norms, um, and so, so as a result, uh, whenever you hear somebody today, there's a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention that wants to want to try to put the Anabaptists forward. Well, um, you, you have to be very specific as to who you're talking to. And even then, with some of the names on the left-hand side of the board, there's, there's a tremendous amount of, of disagreement and argument over exactly where Grable and Mance and Roebel and Brotley and Sattler and Blaurock and the others 
they were each different from one another. And uh, the average lifespan of an Anabaptist leader was about three and a half to four years. It's sort of hard to develop much in the way of a systematic theology or a extensive bibliography of written materials, let alone research, dialogue with other people, um, when everybody, Catholic and Protestant, was trying to tie you to a stake and burn you alive. And so there's, uh, there are a lot of things that go into why it is uh, somewhat difficult to nail everything down here. And um, there is a, a reality that, that the Anabaptist movement that Luther, Zwingli, uh, Bootser, Calvin, and then hence all that came after them in the second and third generations of the Reformation, they were primarily focused upon a form of religious belief that did flourish and, and, and come out of primarily the Reformation itself. The problem is, while we can trace them, for example, both uh, Grable and Mons were p- part of the inner circle of Zwingli. They were trained by Zwingli. Uh, they were Zwinglians. And so their introduction to what we would call Anabaptist concepts came from Zurich. Yet they shared things in common with movements and groups and people that pre-existed them, even though they did not know about those people. They, there, was, there was no historical genealogical connection between the Cathar, the Cathari um, of 300 years earlier and them, but there was intellectually and conceptually. And so, again, we have to be very, very careful. We can draw lines back to groups like the Albigensians and Valdensians, and again, even identifying who they were, what they believed is next to impossible in light of the documentation we have. Um, There are lots of books on the subject. The problem is most of them were written during a period of time where the people writing them had a point to prove. And so you get to select your data uh, based upon what point you're attempting to prove. And um, again, these are groups that were hunted down and sometimes, you know, in, in one instance, uh, uh, you know, by the Inquisition, herded into a huge cave, and then they lit a huge fire at the, at the mouth of the cave to suck all the oxygen out and kill everybody, men, women, and children, hundreds of people. Um, then who ends up writing about that? The people who won. And so how accurate is, are, are their accounts going to be of what these people actually believed? You can still dig through them. And by comparing different accounts to different people and going, oh, this person says this, this person, well, you know, maybe that did really represent what they believe, but then this person says this and nobody else says that. And so, but it's a, it's a highly selective and difficult process, and, and you're always left going, well, we can theorize this, but it's really hard to say one way or the other. 
And so, uh, just from a historical perspective, um, we are looking at uh, particularly difficult, uh, uh, a particularly difficult group to get a firm grasp on. But what is interesting, um, I, I've mentioned it before, and I've men- I mentioned it. We were talking about Luther and Zwingli. This issue of sacralism, the state church, uh, in general, to one extent or another, the Anabaptists desired a free church. They desired a church that was not under state control. Did not. In fact, uh, for example, if you've watched the radicals, you know that one of the one of the big things that Michael Sattler pressed for in uh, at Schleitheim. Um, and that Wilhelm Reublin opposed him on, but then eventually gave in on, but then Reublin ended up apostatizing anyways, um, was the acceptance of the protection of princes. The, it, it was a radical, radical, radical idea that a church could exist without the protection of the princes, the governmental authorities. Um, this was... Uh, this was a, a, a crazy thing, but that's one of the things that connects the post-Reformation Anabaptist radicals and pre-Reformation groups, even though you can't say, oh, Michael Sattler read the writings of people from 300 years ago and said these things. There's no evidence that he did. Um, so where did he get these ideas? Well, a lot of these ideas just come from reading the New Testament and going, hey, you know, when I read the New Testament, the church there doesn't look much like the church we have today. You know, uh, looks, it looks like a persecuted uh, church and uh, don't see that the government was enforcing Christian theology on everybody. I, hmm, this is strange. And, and so these ideas start to, start to come up. And uh, there are, like I said, a number of books. One of the, uh, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Um, Williams. Williams' two-volume, huge book, uh, The Radical Reformation. Well, it's a series, I guess. It's two books. Uh, set, I guess we'll call it. Um, is going to give you the vast, you know, the huge amount of documentation. I'd love to be able to find that electronically. Uh, I haven't yet, but I would, if I could get it in PDF, I could convert it to MP3. It would probably, man, live. That would probably be about 60 hours of audio. <laughs> of wonderful computer-read uh, audio that would be, be a lot of writing and writing, but um, I'd still like to, like to do it someday. But there are uh, sources uh, out there, and before you came in, brother, I was talking about Leonard Verdine, and, and you're having given, uh, introduced me as reformers and her stepchildren and anatomy of a hybrid, so we already gave you due credit for, uh, for uh, the uh, uh, materials there. So... so um, uh, the very title of that, that book, The Stepchildren of the Reformers, is a, you know, is a, says something. Um, the, the Reformation as a whole is going to, you know, because remember I told you, Luther, when the Zwickau prophets first came into Wittenberg, Luther was not immediately throw them in prison, hang them from the highest yard arm. Um, he actually said, well, we need to listen to what they have to say and, and a few things like that. It took a year, you know, not 
not, that, that's not a long time back in those days. Uh, for us, where everything depends on the president's last crazy tweet, um, things happen like that. And the vast majority of our population has forgotten what the greatest controversy was a year ago. Uh, that's not how humanity has existed for a very, very long time. Things moved a whole lot more slowly in the past than they do today. And so uh, a year difference um, is, is not a lot. So Luther did pretty quickly come to the conclusion, these people are dangerous. Um, but from Luther, Zwingli at the same time period is coming to the same conclusions. Uh, Felix Mons, I have stood on the bridge uh, close to the uh, cathedral in Zurich. Uh, uh, over the river, uh, right there where uh, they tied his hands and his feet and uh, uh, drowned him, gave him his third baptism. He was the first Anabaptist martyr in Zurich, would not be the last. And that was in January of 1527. So uh, by, the, by 1530, there is a generalized uh, acceptance amongst the Reformed, uh, that Anabaptists minimally must be driven out of your territories. And by the middle 1530s, right around the same time as the conversion of uh, Calvin, uh, by the middle 1530s, because of Munster, which we're going to spend some time looking at later on, because of Munster, they are considered a grave threat to all governmental order, because of Munster, they were. Um, and the, the numbers, well, 1534, 1535, at least 15,000 Anabaptists uh, executed uh, in northern Germany and surrounding countries, at least. Um, and you need to, rem- need to remember, Baptists as a whole, uh, there was a Baptist burned in London in 1611, the year the King James Version came out. And in some of the northern European countries, the Baptist martyrology extends into the early 18th century. So uh, in Europe, uh, Anabaptists slash Baptists, uh, and unfortunately people have rarely made much of a distinction, um, have an extensive martyrology, an extensive history of, uh, of death at the hands of Catholics in southern Europe, yeah, but probably more at the hands of Protestants. And you will not find uh, in the writings of uh, Luther, certainly not Zwingli, because Zwingli dies early on, and so, um, uh, but he was certainly involved at the beginning of the martyrology. Um, Calvin, um, you will not find any sympathy uh, toward Anabaptists. And uh, primarily uh, because of what happened in Munster, which is why we're going to spend some time looking at it. Aside from the fact that it is undoubtedly one of the most fascinating stories in all of church history. It just, it just is. It's, uh, it's incredible. And if you want to beat me to the punch, uh, there is a book available, uh, Kindle and paperback, called um, The Taylor King. Uh, which is the story of the rebellion at uh, at Munster, and it's uh, it's fascinating. So 
we'll get to that uh, fairly quickly. But let's look at some of these terms, lest I have to write them again next week, which, which I might. We'll, we'll see. Um, uh, Wiedertaufer, or Anabaptist, um, simply is a term that makes sense from outside the movement. Because, and again, you can have all sorts of groups that uh, insist upon believers' baptism. And the reason it became a re-baptism was because in a sacral society, your entrance into both church and state was by the same mechanism, infant baptism. We've, I don't know how many times I've mentioned that the tax roles and basically the citizenship roles of European countries uh, were based upon baptism roles of the church. And so your baptism was your entrance into society as a whole, which was a state church. And so if you become convinced that the biblical form of baptism is credo-baptism, that there is a... uh, element of knowledgeable repentance and profession of faith that is necessary for Christian baptism to be Christian baptism. Uh, Then, from outside the movement, you would look like an Anabaptist. You would look like you're baptizing again. That's the Greek form. Um, Taufin is to baptize, so we do it again. Um, but from inside the movement, you're going, no, 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 no. I'm saying that what happened to me before was not Christian baptism. And what's happening to me now is Christian baptism. And many of them would then go on and say, and if you haven't done what I'm doing now, you've actually never been baptized. So I suppose you could come up with sort of a negation uh, of baptism, and that's what they would call everybody else. I'm not sure if they did. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in their literature someplace they referred to their enemies as uh, the non-Baptists or the not having been baptized or people or whatever. Um, but uh, this concept, of course, this term was used by Catholics and Protestants both who were sacralists and who supported sacralism. So both of them together, this would, uh, opposition to Anabaptism united Catholics and Protestants. Um, and in fact, we'll see uh, at uh, Munster that uh, it was a united Catholic and Protestant Lutheran uh, force that eventually crushed the rebellion in Munster. Uh, they could get together on this, because the Catholics and the Protestants together were both sacralists. And these people were saying, yet to that. And of course, to this day, especially Catholic um, writers and apologists, will say that the secularism that has now utterly taken over all of Europe uh, had its origin in this movement. Uh, because, up, well, and they would blame the Reformation as well, but especially seen in something like this, you have the rejection of um, 
the centrality of religious faith to culture, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that was not, obviously. None of the Anabaptists envisioned a secular Europe, or no one could even think of something like that. Um, but they will make the argument that, uh, looking back, that the, that's how these things took place. So it's interesting that something... That, that a, a sacramental view, a view of the ordinances or the sacraments, so we're going to get down to sacrament schwermer down here, um, that that has, has become the primary descriptive that holds together a wide variety of people. I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, that's, as, that's as silly as, as connecting us with Jehovah's Witnesses who also believe in credo-baptism. Yeah, but what do they believe about all this other stuff? Well, it doesn't really matter. And that, that's the problem with this wide, 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 wide term is it held together such massively diverse views of much more fundamental things, uh, much more uh, important things than that. Uh, Donatistan, uh, the Donatists, remember? Uh, I know it's been a long time now, but... Uh, if, uh, if you need to, you can, you can uh, look at either uh, George's or Sean's notes, uh, and they, can, uh, they you know, can take you back there. Uh, that was so long ago, I think it was before Kelly's work schedule changed, and, and she was taking notes too. So. Um, but um, if you recall what the Donatist schism was all about in, uh, in North Africa, the Donatists were the separatists. They were the ones that uh, rejected... Um, an incipient early form of sacralism. And they uh, eventually, uh, Augustine gave in to the utilization of um, state power to suppress the theological heresies of the Donatists, which didn't work, never never has. Um, But so when this type of term, you're a Donatist, is being used, um, there is a both a ecclesiastical as well as sacral element to that as an insult. We see, we, we, you, you guys are heretics because you're associated with those heretics back then, you know, and Augustine stood against them, so Augustine was standing against you, and, and they, they recognized um, the anti-state church attitude of the vast majority of the Anabaptists. Now, again, you can look at Grable and Mounts, for example, for a couple years under Zwingli, and you're not going to find that as a primary element of their thinking. But once the council turns against them, once the state church turns against you, it's pretty easy to start questioning the validity of the state church as long as you remain convinced that what you believe elsewise, that you're, telling, that you're being told to stop believing by the state church, is true. Uh, then it's pretty easy to see where uh, you start going, hmm, maybe the state church thing isn't such a, such a grand idea. Uh, and so that term was used of them uh, along those lines. Um, Stabler uh, means a staff carrier, a person carrying the, like the shepherd's staff. Um, and some, and this had happened before the Reformation, uh, this is going back into the, into the Cathari and the Valdensians and the, uh, there's a staff right there, uh, the Valdensians and uh, 
it falls over, but it's uh, the same, pretty much the same thing, not, not quite the, exactly the same thing. But the Valdensians and the Albigensians and things like that, um, it was a protest against the fact that the church used force to compel men uh, to believe as she believed. And so it's a rejection of the sword and the substitution of a staff, uh, like, you know, the shepherd uses his staff to, to rescue the sheep, not coerce the sheep into believing something that they don't want to believe, or I'm not sure that sheep actually believe much one way or the other, if you know what I mean. But the point is the shepherd's staff is more often associated with uh, uh, rescuing, you know, the shepherd's heart rather than the, the, the stern uh, type of picture that you would have from the, the, sacral, the sacral church. I've mentioned the Cathari. The Cathara uh, was a term that went way back into the Middle Ages. Um, there had been many who had died, especially under the Inquisition, but even before then, uh, for being Cathari. Uh, literally, of course, cathartic, it means pure. Uh, and originally it would have reference uh, to the fact that they are seeking a pure church, a church where Christ is formed in its members. Um, even Luther admitted that many of these groups uh, had moral lives that were better than those in his own church. And as I mentioned, at one point, he, he had recognized that if a, if a holy church was the goal, it would have to be a free church. Uh, it could not be a state church. Uh, but he became convinced that that was incorrect. Um, but uh, there was a recognition initially, up until Munster, and afterwards as well on an individual level, but Munster painted the whole movement literally to this day uh, because of the insanity that broke out in Munster and the things that they did and, and um, the immorality of, uh, of, of what took place there, really the insanity of what took place there. But uh, still... There, there was a recognition, uh, especially with later Anabaptist leaders stuff, that they were extremely moral men. They were just seen as being extremely moral, dangerous men. And you can be a moral man, but still be very dangerous to prevailing social order. Um, and so they would be called the Cathar. Sacrament Schwermer, uh, of course, is in reference to the from the outside, disrespect and even to the point of despising the established order of the sacraments in the church. Um, what would be a normal translation of Schwermer? That, interestingly enough, the common Donatistan would be more of the technical term, but maybe a phrase would use coming from the Latin. Schwermer would be like the common man's term, like is almost like sacramentalist. They're, it's like enthusiasts about this subject. So they talk too much about the sacraments? Yeah. But it would be in a negative sense. Yes, yeah, so all in the historical context of who these people were. Right, yeah. So today if you said sacramentalist, you get a different thought. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a prevalent part of, in the earlier groups, and then, in the Anabaptists after Zwingli, 
Um, when you're trying, you know, these, these people had to be very evangelistic. They had to, they're trying to build a church. So you're, you're trying to get people to accept your viewpoints. So you have to have arguments that are going to grab people's attention. So, for example, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, sometimes they will, if it's a holiday season, they'll use the holidays as their in to, to try to say, hey, you ever notice that the Bible doesn't say anything about this, that, or the other thing? Or if it's not the holiday season, uh, one of the things that I like to talk about is the shape of the cross. You know, maybe you have a cross in your home or something or on your car or whatever, and they'll use that and say, well, you know, it, 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 that's not the way it was shaped. It was actually just a, a pole, and, uh, uh, you know, Jesus was impaled upon a pole, and, you know, nobody else talks about it, but we do. And, and that, that way they're sort of getting the foot in the door with something you may have never thought of before, and they're trying to establish a foothold of authority. Well, you read the published writings, um, few that there were, but uh, the published writings, uh, when I say few, I, I, I mean major works, as we're going to see, one of the things that was fascinating in Munster was they had a printing press, and boy, did they use it. Uh, just about must have worn that thing out, uh, the tracks and stuff that they were cranking out of Munster, um, which, which worked. I mean, they distributed those things all over northern Europe, and uh, uh, many people tried to get to Munster uh, to join the rebellion and were cut down on the way. Imprisoned, burned, whatever. I mean, thousands of people. Uh, and it was primarily because uh, they had, uh, Bernard Rothman had a printing press, and he was a good writer. And uh, you read those tracts and things like that, what are they focused on? The mass and baptism and all the, you know, the seven sacraments of the Roman church. And uh, it's pretty easy to demonstrate. They don't have a biblical basis, and so you go after that. And then, of course, it's real easy to go after all the, uh, you know, we think that's what, what happened this week with the report from Pennsylvania uh, is somehow some new and shocking thing for Rome. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's been that way for a long, 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 long centuries. And um, so it was real easy to point to the most recent scandal for whatever bishop has how many wives and how many children, whatever else it might be. Um, and this would be highly effective, a very, very effective methodology. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they were united as to what they then believed positively. It's sometimes easier to unite negatively against a common enemy than it is, than is to get together and come up with that, something positive that you are all agreed upon. Uh, big difference between the two. It's real easy to get a bunch of people together to go, they are bad. It's a whole lot tougher to get that same group of people to all sit down and go, and this is what we believe positively. Um, boy, you can you could fill volumes with how many times that's happened over the course of church history, and so um, they might have been unified as Anabaptists, but exactly what that baptism as an adult accomplished. Baptismal regeneration versus non-regeneration. Um, uh, what about the Lord's Supper? Uh, how would the Lord's Supper have to be celebrated? And in what context? And what did it mean? And uh, you didn't have nearly as much unity there, though generally 
you would have more of a obviously memorialist uh, view in uh, in the supper, but most of them were baptismal regenerationists. Most of them would view baptism sort of as the gateway into salvation. Um, so uh, there were some there there were tons of fundamental compromises of justification by faith in Alexander Baptist. No question about it. But then again, that wasn't a big issue for them. That wasn't their fight. Uh, they had a fight against sacralism, and that's what defined their particular, their particular perspective. Uh, sacramentalism is, of course, absolutely central to the sacral system. And so since they're rebelling against that state church concept, then you can see why they would go there. Uh, Winkler refers to someone who meets in secret and in private. You know, uh, so we're going to get together over at John's house. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about fishing. Well, no, you're actually not. But um, in the vast majority of places, now, there were some times when the Anabaptists would sort of become a majority in an area. Um, as we'll see, this happened outside of Zurich. And so you could have larger meetings that were sort of open. Uh, but in the vast majority of places uh, before the Reformation, under the Inquisition and stuff like that, and then even afterwards, whether in, in Protestant Europe or in uh, Roman Catholic Europe, your meetings were in secret. Um, you, there was always the danger of someone who you don't know, if they show up, I mean, you're really going to be asking them questions uh, about who they are, where they're from. And even then, you know, uh, it's that tension. You want to have fellow believers, uh, and you have to somehow grow your movement. But on the other hand, this person could go running off to the authorities and... Uh, Next week, you know, you've got soldiers waiting for you at the place where you met the week before. Didn't the early church have the same yeah. issue? So the early church were ginklers also. Were- in a sense, yeah, 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 in a sense, that's true. Um, very much so. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a parallel at that point uh, between, the, between the two, except that the prosecuting authority in the early church is the pagan Roman Empire, uh, which is a sacral empire. It's just different religion. Uh, and of course, they made that parallel. They they would they 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 definitely saw themselves as the heirs of the early church, the pure early church, um, in um, in that way. Rottengeister was a term that referred to one who formed factions or parties. Uh, a factious, well, the very term heretic is one who makes a a choice, and so it's very similar to the term heretic along those lines. Um, they desired the freedom to follow their conscience as it was led by the Spirit of God in Scripture. Uh, the exact balance between those two is what will become a very important area of discussion and a balance that is completely lost in Munster and other places. Munster wasn't the only place that happened. It just happened most spectacularly there uh, because Munster happened to be a big, rich super fortified town. And so once it was taken over by the Anabaptists, lock the gates, you've got cannon up there, got lots of food, lots of money, and uh, 
you end up with an over a year-long siege and all the weirdness that happens um, in, in that, uh, that time period, which, like I said, I'm really surprised they haven't made a movie out of it because it would be a blockbuster. It really would be because you wouldn't have to make almost anything up uh, that you really would not have to um, uh, exaggerate anything uh, to make it just one of the most, you're kidding, that actually happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that actually happened. And I can think of some actors to represent, you know, uh, Jan Mathias, uh, ooh, yeah, I can think of a bunch of, bunch of heavy metal rock stars that would fit his, uh, his role real well. And then uh, uh, Jan of Leiden, whoever the current 20-something heartthrob dude is, uh, that would be Jan of Leiden. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah, it would... would we could make some real money with that one. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, uh, they uh, obviously, rejecting governmental interference, had to then deal with, well, is there any way for us to actually have anything in common? I, I mean, um, when you look, for example, at the Schleitheim Confession, uh, Michael Sattler, uh, Wilhelm Reublin, 1527. Uh, when you look at Schleitheim, the realm of agreement was hard fought and still isn't super, super, super wide. I mean, uh, they're feeling their way along and they're meeting in barns, you know? I mean, uh, it's not like they can... Uh, put together statements uh, and, you know, uh, there's a statement being put together right now, for example, that'll come out in a few weeks. And um, I'm a part of the ones that have been working on it. And you send out an email, there's a link, y'all can go read the same thing, you can make comments on it, and, and you know, Google Docs and all the rest, that kind of stuff. And, ah, that's easy. Couldn't quite do that that way. Uh, you had to travel back roads. And again, if you've watched the radicals, you've seen uh, you know, them gathering at Schleitheim and things like that. And, and what took place even there. Um, is, is, uh, so the point is, um, from, from the peoples outside looking at the movement, these are dividers. These are people who uh, demand a right to define things themselves. Uh, and so for many, they were people who are spiritually immature, they're ignoring history, uh, they just live to make divisions, and you know what? There are people like that. And did the Anabaptist movement attract people like that? Yep, sure did, sure did. Uh, it does make me just wonder when I look at the people that were attracted to Munster, what attracted them? Uh, I, it, it is very difficult. Yes, sir? So what would Andrew Jackson have said about the... No, I'm sorry. This is a big question that I'm introducing right at the beginning. But I wonder sometimes uh, why Reformed Baptists are so um, ready to call themselves Calvinists when it's abundantly obvious that Calvin, at least in the context of his day, would have been totally fine with a bare minimum throwing us out of the land if not just outright killing us and how Calvin himself would be very confused that we would call ourselves Calvinists. And it's just, I think... Because Calvin never ran into one of us. And uh, our pedigree is, is historically 
genealogically straight out of the English Puritans, Presbyterians, Calvinists in, in, in the UK, um, and not from these folks. We have a connection to them conceptually in regards to baptism, for example. But even the basis upon which we would argue that would be different than the Anabaptists. Uh, we would argue that on the same sola scriptura ground and with a connection to history that the Anabaptists would say, that's fatal, don't do that. Well, we don't know. There were Anabaptists, though. There may have been, like you said, they didn't have many writings who did. No, I, I, well, okay, but there would be no, there, there is no historical evidence of a developed covenantal form of Reformed Baptist teaching that Calvin would have had any encounter with. And in fact, what's interesting, what we'll see next week, and we'll have to close with this, is it was Zwingli's debate with these guys that first led to the concept of a covenantal view of infant baptism in the history of the church. So if the infant baptism side is just now developing it, I can guarantee you the Baptist side hadn't even started considering that stuff yet because there wasn't a position against which to respond at that point. So Calvin would have kicked us out, but Calvin never met one of us. The Anabaptists that he met were much more the Munsterite type, which we ourselves would go, ah, and we would run from. We are, we are, we are a minute past, so we will have to continue, we will have to continue that conversation or the door is going to open and the kids are going to run in and we're not going to know what, what in the world is going on. So we've, we've gone late. Let's, let's close the word prayer. Father, thank you for this time. We ask now that you would uh, calm our hearts and minds for uh, worship. May we focus upon your truth. May you be honored in all that takes place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.